Welcome to the What, How, Why podcast, where we try and answer the question, how have our guests got to where they are today? On this week's episode, I have Rahul. He graduated from LSE a couple years back with a degree in economics, worked as an investment banker at Rothschild, and is now an analyst at a pension fund. This is a really useful conversation for anyone considering a career in finance, where we get past the smoke and mirrors, talk about what investment banking actually is, how the process of getting a job with these top firms works, and the lessons he's learned from his highs and lows. As always, I hope you find it useful. Great. So what I'm hoping to do today is do an absolute whistle-stop tour of investment banking, pension funds, buy-sides, sell-sides, corporate finance, all of this stuff that is a bit nebulous and a bit difficult for ordinary people to understand and hopefully you can take us on that journey i'm going to try and keep it as simple and clear as possible because if i think back to when i was trying to learn about all this stuff yeah it was very very confusing with, with a lot of different terms that felt like it meant the same thing so yeah I, i'm going to try and be as helpful as i can fantastic so can you start us off by just talking about what it is you're doing right now yeah sure so I'm currently working at PSP Investments as a credit investments analyst. Mm-hmm. Um, so to sort of unpick all the things I just said um, and, and put it simply, I look at sort of providing debt to, to companies that are looking to take over other companies uh, and specifically private equity companies. Okay. So in this overall framework of investment banks, buy side, sell side, where exactly does the work you do fit in into all of this? I guess I'm trying to ask, can you give us an idea of the landscape of finance and all these different financial institutions? Yeah, sure. So I guess where I like to start is firstly making that distinction between what's buy side and what's sell side. I think mm-hmm. that's, that's really where it all starts off. Um, so buy side, which is like where I currently work in, um, this includes your hedge funds, your private equity funds, your pension funds, family offices, so any fund that has money that they invest their own money with, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they, look, they could invest in uh, any public securities, um, like bonds or stocks, um, and also take on private investments. So like a private equity company taking private, some um, sort of company that's floating uh, on the stock market or taking private another private company. Um, right. On the other side of the spectrum, you have sell side. So sell side is where really your investment banks sit. So I think the easiest way to understand what they do is to treat them as a financial services company. They provide financial services to their clients and their clients mm-hmm. de- de- um, depend on, depending on which part of the investment bank you look at will differ. So sort of thinking about how the investment bank is structured, I think again, it's, it's, it's easiest to look at it as two buckets. You've got sales and trading and you've got investment banking division. And often it gets confusing because you have another investment banking term within an investment bank. So to, to make it more simple, let's call this advisory. Yeah. So when you think of it like that, then it makes a lot more sense um, as to what an investment bank does and how it fits into that sales side space. So for example, sell side, uh, sorry, in sales and trading, this is where you have um, essentially institutional investors. Um, this could be some high net worth individual that wants to invest some of his money all the way down to a small family office that wants to um, start investing in the public uh, markets. So they, they hire an investment bank to help them. So you could be doing anything between selling ideas, 
is what your sales uh, force does, uh, mm-hmm. to making markets, which is what traders do. They connect some buyers and sellers in the market or providing some research. So this all fits under that sales and trading bucket. Um, and on the other side, you've got IBD or advisory, as I, as I mentioned before. Yeah. This is essentially trying to provide financial advisory to corporates. So you could be hired to provide your expertise on a sector. Uh, if a company is trying to acquire another company within that sector, this is often called M&A. Um, or you could be hired to provide advisory on um, issuing capital. This is under your capital markets, often called ECM or DCM, standing for equity capital markets and debt capital markets. Mm-hmm. And also in some specific investment banks, you also have restructuring services where you're hired to actually get um, get companies help, basically. And you're seeing a lot of that during the COVID period, uh, especially in uh, retail and, and hospitality, as you'd imagine. Yeah. So just to kind of summarize what you said there, the understanding here is that there's a lot of stuff that comes under this umbrella of investment banking, if that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. When people, when people say investment banker or I'm an investment banker, what would you say they're referring to? I think typically when you say an investment banking analyst, you, you refer to the advisory part of the piece. Um, and uh, sort of if you're a sales and trading analyst, you, you're part of the sales and trading part. Um, but um as you said, it's, it's an umbrella term that gets thrown around a lot. And it's, mm. it's also because when you're trying to understand this, it's not sufficient just to know what each of them represent. It's not good enough just to know what one M&A team is or one sales and trading team is. Yeah. It's important to get the bigger picture and how everything fits in. Because um, there's, uh, for example, some sales and trading desks that will be trading the product that um, some capital markets guy in uh, advisory would be going on to help a corporate with. And there's the other nuance you have to understand is that there's a strict sort of Chinese wall between both the sales and trading and advisory side when there's private information going sort of backward and forward. So even the workflow seems quite different. So would you say that the actual stereotypes by investment banking, are they based on one of these different areas? Um, Yeah. I mean, like if you, I think if you look at most movies out there, like Wolf of Wall Street, um, they they often try and emulate what investment banking was back in the sort of well, pre-crash. Um, and a lot of that tends to be the sales and trading side. Because yeah. a lot of the times it's seen as the more sort of sexy um, part of the investment banking world. Because it's, it's, it's a lot more quick. It's a lot more decisions that are being made day by day. I mean, a lot of these traders have to close their books on the same day. So they're making these, these decisions to profit the same day. Mm. But when you look at investment banking, it's, it's not one day decisions. These decisions are made over a couple of months, um, sitting closely with C-suite um, executives to, to really comp- uh, sort of understand what strategy they want to they go forward with. And some of these decisions could, could have industry defining uh, implications. Yeah, and just to get a better idea of the landscape, who would you say are the big players in this area? If you, if you just do a quick Google search, you obviously find the JP Morgans, the Goldman Sachs, um, the, the Morgan Stanleys of the world. But I think um, it's important to understand that there are certain banks that are good at what they do um, and they specialize in that. So, uh, and another distinction to make is that not all investment banks will also have a sales and trading division. There's some boutiques out there, specifically uh-huh. Rothschild, the one I work for, they specialize in advisory. Um, because if you think about sort of there's an inherent conflict of interest. If you're telling me um, I can hire an investment bank to 
help me out on a, a on a merger um let's say i'm trying to acquire a competitor but at the same time there's another another team in this investment bank that sits kind of far away but it's also actively trading on these stocks and you're telling me there's no sort of information flows between you two but as soon as my stock goes up somehow your your bank profits um if if the trade is good good for his money basically so i think over the sort of especially past the the financial crisis there's been a trend away um to, or, or not away but definitely trying to include more of these elite boutiques and um financial advisory only investment banks to to sort of form as a um as a mediator to to provide sound financial advice that that doesn't have the conflict of interest but that being said you still have um your goldman sachs and joseph morgans that tend to uh, lead the league tables if you want to read into them sure okay I want to step back a bit and just talk about your journey. Can you start off with sort of how you first got interested in this field and how it's led you to where you are? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll first caveat saying my journey is by no means a typical journey. Uh-huh. And um, I think it's, it's another thing to, to keep in mind. There's no one journey um, that gets you to that final seat. And I know so many people with, uh, with very different journeys that still ended up in positions they're in. So um, maybe I'll start with that, what a typical journey could look like um, and how it could differ. So normally, um, sort of interest in investment bankings comes around just before university starts. I remember I did my first um, sort of insight day. Um, if you look on LinkedIn, there's, there's multiple people sort of semi-bragging about the insight days that they've <laughs> yeah, got. these that. virtual yeah i mean the thing is like in the grand scheme of things it does help because it it gives you an idea and and a, and a bigger and a bigger picture of what's actually the sort of black box of investment banking earlier on mm-hmm. um but i think the the biggest benefit i took from that um was not to put it on my linkedin but actually being able to talk to people um because i think that's the biggest uh sort of biggest benefit you can take because it's it's almost like a two-way interview um whatever whatever way you look at it because you're getting to know what it's actually like, um, which I can tell you very honestly, does differ from what you read on Wall Street Oasis or Student Room or, or whatever these online publications will show. Um, because you get an actual anecdotal piece um, that you can take away with you and actually question yourself, is this something that I want to get into? Um, and, the, and, and the other thing is that it, they get a sense of what you're like. Because if you're asking sort of questions that, help you understand this you look like a promising talent that they could possibly call back for for internships um i can i can get on to sort of the sort of intricacies of trying to game your way around networking later on but um that's that's normally the first step right. and then you get to uni um i guess sort of second weekend you don't even really get to be able to enjoy fresh week fully before someone comes to you and says have you applied to the spring week or at least that was my experience at LSE. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's a uh, spring weeks are just sort of this, um, again, it's, it's like an inside day. It's, it's a, but it's a little bit longer. It's a week's worth of, um, sort of in, interactive, um, presentations or shadowing sessions, um, and networking sessions just for you to get a better sense of what you're doing. Um, if, if you were to be, uh, employed by one of these organizations. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, when you think of it from an outside in perspective, um, there's 
certain things you can control and certain things you can't when it comes to the application process, which I'm happy to go into uh, a little later. But just to sort of finish off my point about how this journey typically looks, once you get some, some of these spring weeks, um, you might be able to convert one of them or two of them into yeah. an internship. And this is, I guess, the first time you actually get a sense of what it's like to, to work at these organizations. Uh, is this a summer internship? Yeah, it's, it, it takes place over your summer. Um, there's some others that you could possibly do earlier, but typically people tend to do this in their second year of uni or the right. penultimate year if you're doing a four-year course. Yeah. Um, and this is 10 weeks over the summer. Um, often it's with one team. Uh, sometimes you might have a rotation, but um, it gives you a, an actual sense of um, what it would be like if you were to, to essentially be an analyst in this team because um, you'll be working directly um, with the, the analysts on the desk or sometimes even associates and directors, depending on how big the team is. Uh, and you'll be involved in real life transactions if you're in the sort of advisory. For S&T, you might be um, sort of shadowing a lot of these traders or, or, or sales um, people to, to get understanding of how that brain works and unpick what it takes to be um, an analyst in investment banking. And a few lucky people end up converting it and um, going on to, to start their grad job after the uni finishes. Okay, so that's, that's a typical pathway then. It's sort of spring insight, spring insight weeks, then summer internship, grad job after converting it, hopefully. Exactly. But the thing is, like, in by no means is this a linear process. Like I said before, my path was not, um, was not linear. Um, I, I ended up doing uh, a random internship in India um, at a venture capital firm. Um, thought I liked it, but I thought I, I needed something a bit more grit. I felt like a lot of those investment decisions were sort of being made just of um, trusting people at the end of the day, which is still important, but I felt yeah. it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't uh, Then I did, exactly, yeah. Mm. And then I did my internship at Rothschild um, and I did it specifically within leverage finance and restructuring, which is great because it gave me a sense of um, sort of debt and credit. Um, but unfortunately I didn't convert it. And this was at a time where like you could, you could think, oh, I didn't get my sort of grad job after my second, uh, second year internship. Mm -hmm. What do I do now? And then explored a bunch of different opportunities, like thinking about doing a master's. Um, and, and I finally ended up getting a, an off-cycle internship, which is a sort of a much longer three-month uh, to six-month internship that I did after my um, uni finished. Um, and I ended up converting it and uh, I started as an uh, investment analyst uh, yeah, on this April. That's and, fantastic. And as I say, yeah. yeah, as I say, this is, this is, this is just one way. Um, I know people that have done their masters, applied for summer internships again, um, and ended up getting grad jobs. And there's some people that have just pretty much just caught it off for a year, um, traveled for a bit, uh, and ended up getting grad jobs. I guess it's it's just testament to the amount of resilience you show. I guess in that case, I think it's interesting you bring that point. I think investment banking will test your resilience. You'll get a lot of rejections. Um, you'll be able to sort of not understand some of these and i think that's the that's the biggest thing that should drive you uh, to be able to learn from what you can and accept what you can't control and sure. that there is a lot you can't and just bouncing off some of the things you mentioned earlier i had a question i want to ask about universities so you mentioned you went to lsc and i think there's a good track record of lsc econ graduates going to investment banking but there might be a lot of people out there who perhaps aren't lsc that are thinking maybe they will, they'll 
investment banks look poorly upon this or I don't have a shot on it because they've got all these Oxbridge OSC grads. How true do you think it is that you need to go to one of these top universities? Do you think that as long as you do well with the like psychometric tests and interviews and that whole process, do you think the investment banks really look at where your degree's from or will that be a, a factor in their decision-making? Well, I'll tell you why there, there seems to be a correlation with good universities placing um, candidates into uh, good investment banks. Hmm. I think it often comes down to, it's almost a sort of a, a positive feedback loop. Once a few Cambridge LSE grads get into investment banking, they know a few people in the years below that they can either refer or once they, are, they meet them in an interview, yeah. they instantly hit it off because they can talk about sort of university events or just yeah, that. Like sort of society stuff and all this and that. Exactly. So it's, it's the networking thing all over again. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is. But the thing is, it doesn't mean you can't break that sort of positive feedback loop by being outside that circle. Because mm-hmm. if, you, if you work hard and get yourself to, to these networking events that aren't university specific, so Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley will run these um, sort of university-wide events, even in universities that aren't your top three. They'll be across all, all Russell groups because it's, it's their mandate as well to, to diversify their talent. Because if everyone was from Cambridge and Oxford and LSE, they'd all think the same. And they would all be able to come to the same conclusion and they would never be challenged to think in a different way. Okay. So it's very much in their interest to try and diversify their pool of talent. So to summarize, I guess the, the, the short answer is that you have a shot. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'd, I'd say the thing is like, obviously you need to do um, things to, to sort of pull the, the sort of scale back in your favor. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's other things you can do by trying to actively network with people, reach out to people on LinkedIn, try and grab coffees with people and, and, and get that network um, sort of from your own accord instead of being able to meet someone at a university event and, and hit it off straight away. So you, don't, yeah. you might not have that luxury, but it's def, it definitely doesn't hold you back um, as long as you, you do the right things to, to sort of get the skills back in your favor. Okay. And I wanted to move back to, you mentioned your rejection from Rothschild, or not rejection, I guess, you weren't able to convert it. I don't want to, uh, I don't know, pour sauce on any wounds or anything, but what, why, do you oh, think that, why do you think that happened? Or did you have a moment of self-reflection where you realized something might have been, you might be doing wrong with the process? Yeah, look, I think if you, if you don't get a couple of rejections in investment banking, you're doing something wrong, I'd, I'd say. Because the thing is, it's so common. Um, and to sit and stare at it and think you're perfect would be the wrong approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, self-reflection is key. Um, and Rothschild wasn't my first rejection um, because I think even before that, I was at another investment bank that uh, for a spring week and I wasn't able to convert that. But the good thing is every rejection I had, I was able to learn from that and, and, and make myself a better candidate for, for the next time round. Um, with Rothschild in particular, it was... Um, I guess when you think of it, you're in this entire team, you, you want to be able to add as much value as possible and be, be there sort of in, in terms of uh, providing any analysis that you're being asked about. But, the, but at the end of the day, it's about the cultural fit. And if you're not a good cultural fit for that team, there's not mm-hmm. much you can do, which kind of brings me back to that, to the point I was mentioning earlier. There's a lot 
you can try and control, but there's also a lot that you can't control. Um, things you can control, how good your CV is. You can sort of edit it and, and make sort of certain things sound slightly exaggerated. Everyone does it. Um, yeah. There's cover letters. Um, people don't really read them, but it's, it's up to you to make a good one in case one's read. Uh, psychometric tests and technical skills when it comes to an interview, knowing your commercial awareness, all these things you can control. Things you can't control are being a good cultural fit with your team. Um, for example, uh, hitting it off with an interviewer as soon as you walk into that room. So like you can't be as hard on yourself and, and think that um, it's entirely uh, sort of your fault. But um, what you can do is sort of think back as to, to what are the things you can improve on. So with Rothschild, I realized that despite that 10 weeks uh, and not being that right cultural fit, um, there's a lot of things I did do right, like um, in terms of the, the piece of analysis that I put together, um, it was it was up to analyst standard. And I, I, I have to keep that sort of hard work going forward. Um, at the same time, maybe think about why that, uh, why, why wasn't I a cultural fit with certain members? Um, and, and at the end of the day, there is a certain level of, um, I guess, trying to understand who's making the decisions. Um, at Rothschild, there's a, sort of the team staffers or MDs might have the final say. So you might have actually gotten really well with uh, all the analysts and the juniors, but you might not have had that much interaction with the MDs or uh, the team staffer. So instantly you, you're put on the back foot as to someone else who might have had a coffee or two with them. So mm. try and try and understand what the dynamics are within your team, because I think my specific case was specific to me. And I know the next person that could have got even rejected at Rothschild might yeah. have a different reason. Okay. So the culture and fit and ideas of to your personality are actually coming in, coming as the main focus as opposed to the actual quality of work you're doing. Yeah, like I, I think that is the, the biggest takeaway. If there's mm. one thing you can sort of take away from this, is it's that. Yeah, and sorry, just I was going to say, uh, we've got a bunch of questions from some school children. I say school children, six formers. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to try and rattle through them all in about 10 minutes time. And we'll try and keep yeah. them short and sweet so that we can get all of them in. And one of them was about to, I was about to ask was, how true do you think the cliches are for investment banking, i.e. long hours, but very high pay? Look, um, it's important to set your expectations right. Yeah. There will be some long hours. By long hours, what are you talking about? It, it would really depend on, the, on your team. Um, uh -huh. there's, and then the thing is, it would depend on that culture of the team as well. So there's some teams that just prefer doing long weekdays, but giving you weekends off. But there's other teams that will make you come in week, weekends, um, but your weekdays might finish off earlier. Are there, are there specific teams that tend to have like weekends? So you, you mentioned earlier about like sales and trading and M and A and, that, and the, these different teams within RBD. Are there some that have a certain work pattern? Yeah, I'd say that the negative stigma of hours definitely comes from the IBD and advisory side. Sales and trading tend to have very sort of periodic timings because they they work with the market. Yeah, and the market. It has, has set timings when it opens and when it closes sure. advisory because you're working for a client and the client's needs can be erratic right if a client wants a pitch done by monday morning so they can take it into their boardroom meeting um and you get this request on a friday night you might have to pull the weekend mm -hmm. um so it's entirely dependent on the team and how busy they are 
So there's if you if you talk if you talk about the top top shops on the street, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and you, if you take the top teams that often have a lot of deal flow, um, a lot of demanding clients, it's not it's not a stretch to assume that your hours are going to be pretty bad, uh, and that's pretty much the truth. And I, and I don't want to give people false hope. But at the same time, there's some other teams that are very good, but also they tend to work. Maybe the industry they're in is less sort of fast, uh, fast paced and, and more longer term projects. So you can pace that uh, entire deal out over several months. And so you won't be working to like, uh, I don't know, like 11 to 4 a.m. day in, day out. But okay. like, from what I know, the worst has been um, sort of 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. Uh, finishes daily for a couple of weeks and then it cools off to, to sort of 8 p.m 9 p.m finishes until a deal comes back on and the nicest i've ever heard is people leaving maybe like 7 p.m every day okay so nine to seven is probably the nicest you can hope for yeah okay yeah. uh the next question was how difficult was the transition work from uni to working i guess well, LSE kicked my butt a couple of times, so <laughs> the, the the transition was pretty seamless. Yeah, now, I'm joking, but the thing is, I think one thing you have to realize when you start working, you have to be a lot more proactive. Um, you you have to not be reactive, like you can get away in uni. I mean, if in uni you get told that this is a certain set of readings, this is a certain set of problem sets, these are the exam questions. A lot of the time, the 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 problems you're trying to solve in investment banking don't have an answer, or at least they they they're designed in a way that you you can't give one answer it always it's a depends kind of answer right a yes but so, answer yeah exactly so i guess one of the biggest things that uni helped me with is the fact that um when you uh, especially when sort of the, in the in the later years you get exposed to some of these harder questions especially if you're doing an economics degree there's a, there's a lot of yes, but answers to a lot of broad questions. So this kind of helps you frame that discussion or mm -hmm. frame an answer for very difficult questions. And um, going into work, um, this is the exact sort of technique that I applied to, to any time I felt I was um, faced with a difficult problem. Um, and also, I think sort of towards the latter years of LSE, um, that proactivity does kick in. You can't just rely on on your lecture sites to, to get through. You've got to go to your office hours. You've got to mm. also go to office hours prepared. You can't just go and say, teach me. You've got to do your homework. You've got to do your research and um, sort of ask your professor smart questions, which is exactly the same as you would in investment banking. If you have a question, you first Google it and make sure it's not a silly question. And then you go to your associate or an analyst um, and, and ask them in a smart way. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, there is a grace period when you start work where no, no, no question is a silly question. Um, but it, I, I guess it, it, it's always comes, it always comes down to um, how people perceive you. So if you're that guy that keeps asking sort of silly questions that could be Googled, you're quickly going to get uh, a reputation. Yeah, of, a poor rep. I guess the next exactly. question is quite similar to this one uh, in the sense that it's how do you implement what you've learned in sixth form and university to your job? And I guess you've mentioned already this idea of yes but questions under being confident with the idea that there won't be one single answer and being proactive were there anything was there anything else you took away from your formal education into the workplace um i think it's 
it's it's a bit harder to do um and it's easier said than done it's about having a view always having a view um and don't get me wrong some people might 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 have a different opinion um but but that's their view i i say at university especially i felt like whatever i was reading i felt like just taking it in wasn't enough i felt like i needed to sort of question myself um is what i'm reading making sense to me is does this make sense from a big big picture standpoint and i think that's probably one of the, the most crucial things um you can have as a trait um and, and and people who tend to have this trait tend to be the better performing analysts because look if you a lot of investment banking in terms of the tasks you do a monkey could do um it's normally just doing things on excel or fixing things on powerpoint um and, and that's another sort of expectation you need to take into board but um the real sort of analysis comes in when you're taking a step back and seeing where this fits into the bigger picture so if you're on a deal um, for an M&A team and you're asked to put together a slide on sort of strategic uh, initiatives for a company you taking a step back from that one slide and seeing where this fits into the bigger picture that's what makes you a good analyst or, or even a top performing analyst because you're able to link dots that um, you're sort of ex- not expected to but um, sort of if you end up doing this you people look at you and, and realize you have you do have uh, potential uh, to, to, to get promoted. Okay. And this was very similar to, to uni and, and school. All right. And the last question has been asked with a clear goal of UCAS in mind, uh, which is, I guess it's the UCAS season now coming up to summer. It is, what would you, be your key advice on how to write a great economics personal statement? Look, if, if a Reading school kid asks this, I'd say, <laughs> listen to Miss Smith. Um, <laughs> that is your number one advice. But um, I guess, look, I felt like I went about it in the wrong way as well. I remember I did a lot of reading and didn't know what I was doing it for because I felt like that was just what everyone was doing. Yeah. But um, sort of as I did a bit more and more reading, I, I decided to, um, or I found out that there was a path of interest that was driving me towards one sort of, um, one type of book or one type of uh, economics that, that I, I wanted to learn more about. So I'd say, let your passion and interest guide you. Because, um, and also, you should also think about it from the perspective of, of the university you're applying to. If you're applying to LSE, um, there's going to be a quantitative element. They, they're looking for people who are sort of good, good at maths and can see um, qualitative problems from also a quantitative perspective. The same applies for Cambridge. But if you're applying to Oxford for ENM, um, your perspective might be different. You might want to actually start reading up on management um to and see how that plays into to to sort of uh, your thinking as an economist uh at the same time there's other sort of degrees out there like ppe um if your passion leads you towards that don't feel like you have to do economics because i think one thing i didn't mention before is that doing economics is not a one-way ticket into to investment banking or finance in general i know people that have done history i know that people have, who've done engineering uh, maths some people have even done uh, history of art so there's many different journeys you can take as long as you show that there's some sort of um, transferable skills from what your discipline is uh, you can get into to investment banking and also i'd say like don't silo yourself uh, if you're in sixth form and you think investment banking is the only path for you 
I'd say take a step back and start sort of thinking a few steps back. And if you end up coming to the stage where you realize investment banking is for you, that's all well and great, but at least you've checked off all the other points. But um, if you come into your grad job and realize you actually preferred the look of law or consulting, it's going to be very hard to undo. Mm. Okay. And I guess this segues really nicely into what's going to be my last question of why is this the field for you? Oh, so it's a bit of a loaded question. Um, look, I think at the end of the day, I figured out what kind of makes me tick um, and, and what kind of makes me uh, sort of interested. And I think it's, it's always been my, my curiosity. I've always felt like I, I needed to sort of either get to the bottom of things or, or get to a level where I, where I feel comfortable. And yeah. my job at the end of the day, uh, if you put it to its very core, is asking the right questions, uh, especially being on the buy side. You have to be a lot more objective um, and because it's essentially your money at the end of the, end of the line, right? So yeah. I have to ask the right questions and, and be comfortable with the, with the answers I'm getting or at least gain a certain level of, level of comfort that matches the risks that we're taking on. And I think that process itself is something that really suits me. Um, and I oh, can d- see myself- Let me just quickly interject though. I was speaking to Neil last week and he gave a very similar reason for going into management consulting. So I guess my follow-up to you would be why, 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 uh, I be, why invest in banking over consulting? Um, I always felt that um, with consulting, it's, uh, so you, you answer problems, but it's, it's a lot more broader. And often at times when you sort of narrow in, uh, it's not always obvious whether the whether management have actually implemented it because you're not around to, to to help implement that. But with investment banking, I feel like you're actually part of that strategy and you help them roll that out. And like you can, the the easiest proof for you to know that um, your idea or your your work has been implemented is you read the FT headline. You see a, is it an industry defining transaction take place and you know that you worked on it. I feel like that process has always been something that um, excited me a lot more than um, being able to, to sit around with C-suite executives and, and help them understand a problem from, from sort of fundamental up and not be able to, to know whether they implemented it. Mm. And I guess I'd, I'm going to ask you a question. Like, I think it's a very cliche one, but investment banking has this quote unquote evil reputation for being soulless people. Do you think the work you're doing has a net positive effect on society? Personally, I feel like I'm having a net positive impact. Uh, And this is personal to me because of the the firm I work for. So Mm. I work for a pension fund um, who uses the pensions of um, sort of your armed forces in Canada, as well as just general pensioners and puts their money at use. So this is, again, it doesn't mean it's really safe investments. Because at the end of the day, you're looking for a diversified portfolio. So I work in uh, the riskier part uh, and a riskier asset class that invests their, a portion of their money. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm putting my skill set to use to um, return, um, well, to, to, to generate a good return uh, that, that's going to go back and actually have a net benefit to, to society uh, and in particular, the armed forces and pensioners of Canada. Yeah, I mean, I guess another matter on that positive note, do you think that the area in finance in general right now is moving towards a more socially conscious place? I was reading Matt Levine's blog the other day, and he mentioned about how BlackRock's gone coal-free, 
but Trump still arguing for more coal and how there's all these new ESG funds are starting up. And there just seems to be this idea that they've taken on this role of corporate social responsibility more seriously now. Yeah, is, that, sure. is, that for, is that true? Or is it still kind of like smoke and mirrors? ESG is a huge concern. I think every investment that we, we go through with, we have to have an ESG check um, and understand whether um, sort of there's any concerns to be raised. So for example, we don't invest in tobacco or any sort of um, coal and uh, sort of old emissions type um, businesses. And a lot of funds have started replicating the strategy as well. They, they have uh, impact investing, which is sort of trying to invest in socially um, beneficial causes and beneficial um, businesses. And I, I personally think that this is actually a better strategy than straight up philanthropy. Because I feel like when you, when you sort of invest in charity, you don't know where that trickles down in. Mm. Um, so I feel like the more funds are being used in a smart way to, to create social benefit, the better. Um, and, and I think it's heading in the right direction. Um, and also, I, I went to this uh, interesting talk um, a couple of years ago, actually, it was, it was from this ex-CEO of Rothschild, who was essentially talking about how um, philanthropy as a model for creating so- social benefit is, is kind of dying because us as sort of people in finance should be using our skill set to be able to um, create, create social benefit. And this doesn't necessarily have to come from investing because not everyone will have a billion dollar fund to invest in social impact startups. But uh, at the end of the day, we're smart people. We can end up um, spending a tight, like an hour of our day or an hour of our week to to go to um, uh, underperforming schools and try and give them the expertise to to understand what this world is like. So, for example, something that you're doing, which is which is great, right? You're trying to provide information in in places where where people might not be able to to sort of get it, and it's a, it's very much smoke and mirrors. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's part about using a skill set to, to provide that social benefit and straight away just giving your money to, to, a, to an organization that might not be able to trickle it down to the people in need. Well, I think we've just about managed to do that in half an hour. So thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, no worries. Pleasure. Anytime. And just like to say, if, if anyone does have any follow-up questions, they can um, hit my LinkedIn up. 